Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 613 of the podcast and it is Wednesday the 23rd of March 2022 as I record this. So on today's in-betweenisode, I'm talking to Catherine Goldman, a copyright and trademark attorney in the USA who has worked in intellectual property for over 30 years. We talk about why Catherine is so excited about NFTs and blockchain, and then we get into the legal side. What are the implications for your intellectual property licensing? What are the publishing contract clauses to avoid to future-proof your author career? And how this might shape out in the years to come? Because look, whether you want to do NFTs or not, maybe you're, obviously right now we can't actually do NFT books still. (laughs) It's not there, but these things are emerging. And whether you're interested or not right now, at least make sure you have the choice in the future rather than just signing it all away. As many authors did with digital rights back in the mid 2000s. So Catherine and I also talk about DAOs, and this is a new a new word um, or a new acronym. Uh, DAOs, D-A-O-S, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Now, I'm very excited about these, and I'm not going to get too technical. You will need to go down the rabbit hole yourself if you want to know the details. But we talk a bit about it and how it relates to companies, basically. But keep in mind the idea of the smart contract, which automatically executes according to rules that you put into it. And as we've talked about with NFTs, an NFT has a smart contract associated with it that controls one specific token, the uh, non-fungible token. Uh, So, for example, on sale, send money to this wallet, i.e. my wallet, give me money. (laughs) On resale, send 5% to my wallet. Uh, But also you might, for example, have other things going on. Now, DAOs are sort of one level above or several levels above with smart contracts that govern rules and various tokens that might enable levels of voting rights and functionality. They're essentially like a company native to the blockchain and the US state of Wyoming uh, allows them. And that is what Catherine and I talk about. Some people say the DAO is the company of the future um, for some specific types of companies, but certainly it could be possible for authors and, and rights holders, intellectual property rights holders, DAOs may be very, very useful. And Catherine and I are particularly excited about estate planning. So what happens when you die? Also things like, um, well, there's just so many things things, but certainly memberships for author collectives. There are things we could do as DAOs that get rid of some of the issues around setting up a a company, but make it easier to do. So yeah, lots of interesting things to think about, but I wanted to introduce the idea of DAOs to everyone. (laughs) I've been reading about this stuff for a while, but I was kind of hesitant to talk about it because again, it's more language. But remember, much of this language is like any new area we will figure it out. So I hope that today we can start 
the conversation about DAOs. And then over time, I mean, again, I'm not setting anything up and I haven't minted an NFT book. I'll come back to what I am doing in a minute, but I haven't minted a, a book as such. And I haven't, um, obviously, I'm not involved in any DAOs right now, although I may well become. But yes, lots of things to talk about. So just a caveat up front, Catherine is an attorney, but she is not your attorney. <laughs> this discussion is not legal advice, financial advice, any kind of advice. It's just a discussion. If you want Catherine's legal advice, please go to her website and definitely sign up for her email list where she shares articles about this stuff. I am just an author with skin in the game. Obviously, I have a lot of skin in the game. I am a full-time independent author um, um, so I know, I guess I know quite a lot about intellectual property licensing and all of this stuff from a very amateur perspective, but I have no legal training. Catherine has 30 years in intellectual property law, so she is an expert and she's interested in NFTs and blockchain. So I hope, I really hope this interview helps you see this is not a fringe topic. I am not a nutter. <laughs> well, maybe I'm a, a nutter sometimes, but this is, this is not out on the fringes. You know, um, Catherine talks about legal Twitter or IP Twitter and how she and fellow attorneys are sort of discussing all this stuff. So it is emerging right now. So that's coming up in the interview section. So I also wanted to give you a bit of an update on my NFTs. Uh, as I mentioned, I haven't minted an, an ebook or an audiobook NFT, but I have now minted and sold four art NFTs on OpenSea. They're basically landscapes generated by a combination of text from my books combined with my photos. And they essentially sold immediately. And thank you so much, wonderful people. <laughs> because they sold to people in this audience. So I'm loving, I love, love, love the creative process. And actually, I'm working on new art every day. I have so many ideas for what I want to do. And now, now yes, it is AI generative art. And uh, but that doesn't mean it's just click a button and there's a finished product. Essentially, it takes time to create each piece. I decide on the book I want to do or the photo I want to use. Uh, so, for example, I've been I I thought about uh, New New Orleans or New Orleans this week, and I was like, do you know what? I know I have some really good pictures from St. Louis Number One Cemetery in um, New Orleans. So I went back to my photos and the book, the book is Valley of Dry Bones, which opens, um, has several scenes set in, in that area, in that very cemetery. In fact, <laughs> did you know what's underneath it? <laughs> but yes, so I was like, okay, I've got this photo in mind. And then I went to the book and I found a text, a uh, couple of lines that relate to the cemetery. And then what I do is I, uh, the site was called Pseudo Make, but they've now renamed it to conjure.art. So conjure, like conjuringmagic.art. And then what happens is essentially I upload the photo and then I use the text box. And the generative art process is it combines the text and the image. Uh, the image is like a model almost. And then <laughs> and then behind it is a big AI text model. And it will generate lots of different images based on various settings that you can define. Then what happens is you go through multiple iterations of that process. So for example, it's like, mm, not quite my thing. I want to increase the detail, the gothic detail of the cemetery or something like that. So essentially, I'm using sort of 
at the moment, I'm going through sort of 15, 20, perhaps more iterations using this process, refining the image. And why I'm loving this is it's helping me think more about Well, I'm loving it because I love the visual art aspect. But secondarily, I'm loving the way it's helping me understand how to work with AI tools, because this is not some it's not an artificial intelligence. It's not intelligent. But you have to direct it. And if you've done my AI assisted author course, you'll know about this kind of prompting. But I think even when I recorded that course back in November, I think I recorded it. So what, four or five months ago? I had I had been using the writing tools, pseudo write, but I hadn't used any art tools more than just to play around. But what I now understand is this iterative process, and that has to work also for the text. So I I'm learning a lot from this process, and as I've said, I'm loving it. And many of you have said you love the art. I love the art too. In fact, what's funny is when I mint it, so when I mint it, it goes on blockchain and then I can decide whether or not I want to sell it. And some of this, I'm like, I would really like to kind of keep that. But I'm at the moment, my goal is to keep selling it. So in fact, I want to make it easier for you to buy one of my NFT art pieces if you want one. And it's kind of like, um, I guess you're investing in my future creative output and sort of betting on me spending the next 15 years creating or more, more hopefully, essentially building up um, this area and that by buying into my art and eventually perhaps my books, you'll be able to resell these in the future. But also you might just like to put them on your metaverse wall at some point. So I feel like it's super early days, obviously. But if you are interested, I'm going to start minting. Well, actually selling. You can mint and then I'll put it for sale. Uh, So every Sunday at 4pm UK on OpenSea, I'm going to put up a new... So once a week, because they do, as I said, they take a while when I think about it and I regenerate things. So I'm going to do a new NFT every Sunday at 4pm UK time. And that will be on OpenSea.io forward slash JFPen. And there's... Uh, you'll be able to see there the, the different tabs. There's a tab for what's available for sale. And then the created tab has my other art in. Or I'm linking everything at jfpen.com forward slash NFTs. So NFTs. So unless I'm away, of course, I won't be minting on a Sunday if I'm away. But um, maybe then I'll do do it later on. But essentially, I want to give you guys a chance um, because at the moment it's sort of I've minted and then people have messaged me and said, hey, um, Have you got something available? And they've bought it immediately. So the other thing that's exciting is you can buy NFTs on OpenSea with a normal credit card. You do not need any cryptocurrency to buy an NFT on OpenSea. So I hope that also encourages you to at least have a look. Of course, you don't need to buy my stuff. You can look at other people's stuff. But um, I think this is really interesting. We're seeing more and more platforms opening up to buying NFTs with uh, normal currency, basically. So yes, fledgling Web3 future. (laughs) Right, so today's interview, uh, thank you to my wonderful patrons for supporting the show. I'm answering questions about all this stuff, about NFTs, about uh, blockchain, about Web3, about all this stuff in my monthly Q&A. And at the moment, I'm kind of combining it, but I'm lumping all those questions together. So if you don't want to hear about those things, you can just listen to the first half. But what I also might end up doing is creating two different um, Q&A 
sessions, one of which is focused on this futurist stuff and the other one, which is craft, publishing, marketing. Because I know everyone's interested in different things, although you guys, if you're still listening, (laughs) you'll be the ones interested in the NFT stuff. So yes, I am answering those questions. If you support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen, uh, you can get that Q&A. I'm also super thrilled to announce we have our first corporate sponsor for the in between episodes because written word media want to be part of the future for authors and um i know the team there and um ricky wolman i feel is also very future focused so i'm gonna <laughs> read their ad today's show is brought to you by the friendly team at written word media written word media knows that marketing your book can be one of the most challenging parts of being an author. That's why they make marketing easy by providing quick, easy and effective ways to promote your books. Written Word Media is best known for their email promo sites, Free Booksy, Bargain Booksy and Red Feather Romance, which I use Free Booksy and Bargain Booksy all the time. They have five promo sites in total that send daily newsletters to a combined audience of over one million readers. They even have a site that helps you promote your audiobooks called Audio Thicket. When you purchase a promotion with Written Word Media, your book is sent out to thousands of readers who love and read books in your genre. As the email hits inboxes, you will see a flurry of sales or downloads on your title. Email promotions are priced based on how many readers are in the genre and range from $25 to $500. The founders at Written Word Media are big believers in the power of innovation. And yes, they are. I know this um, personally. Their newest product, Reader Reach Ads, allows authors to schedule a five-day Facebook ad campaign using vetted audiences and personalized creative in as little as five minutes. No more creating ads or struggling over targeting. Written Word Media handles it all. You can schedule your promotions today at writtenwordmedia.com or send them an email at info at writtenwordmedia.com to ask for recommendations on which promo will best meet your goals. You can also sign up for their free email newsletter to get book marketing tips and news from the world of self-publishing. Check them out at writtenwordmedia.com. And again, just on a personal note, I use Free Booksy and Bargain Booksy in particular paired with Facebook ads. I use their Facebook ad service every few months and they are consistently great. So it is really easy to use, keeps my book sales humming along. Plus, one of the great things is they send me an email that says, uh, you haven't promoted this book for three months. Would you like to promote it again? Which prompts me to then do that (laughs) because time flies. Right, so absolutely go check them out, writtenwordmedia.com. Let's get into the interview with Catherine. Catherine Goldman is a copyright and trademark attorney and has worked in intellectual property for over 30 years. She runs creativelawcenter.com, which offers resources, workshops, and advice for creative professionals, including authors, artists, designers, and more. Catherine's been on the show before talking about estate planning and protecting your intellectual property. And today we're talking about Web3, NFTs and DAOs. So welcome back to the show, Catherine. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you about this. But let's start with a sort of more of an attitude question. Why are you so interested in this intersection between Web3 and intellectual property? Because I've seen so many people shying away from it and saying it's just not happening. But you embrace the change. So why is that? 
So I embrace watching the change, right? It is happening. You cannot turn your back on it right now. But mostly what's intriguing me is that people's imaginations have caught fire in a way we really haven't seen for a couple of decades or maybe a decade. And people are taking this technology and doing things with it that are just limited only by their imaginations. And that is what is fun to watch. And it's the creation from imagination that is the basis of intellectual property. And so that's why I am just loving what's going on these days. I love that you say that, that imaginations are catching fire, because I feel like the talk in the space has been so focused on finance and cryptocurrency and the financial industry that the creativity side is often under the carpet in a way. It's not being talked about that much. And I love that creation from imagination is the basis of intellectual property. I hope people listening are excited about that. But let's get into the publishing industry specifically, because you have a fantastic blog and people who sign up for your email email list, um, get notified of your new posts, and I'm a subscriber. And from a recent uh, article, you said, authors who have signed publishing contracts may have already given up their right to control their work in the metaverse. And let's say metaverse slash web three slash whatever we're going to call it in the future. But what do you mean around that? What do you mean by given up their rights? So um, publishing contracts are license agreements with between an author and a publisher. And in that license agreement, the author grants to the publisher a group or uh, bundle of or part of their copyrights in their creative work. And publishing contracts are dense with language. And in those grants of rights, there are these broad provisions that encompass future technologies. And so if there's a publishing contract that was uh, drafted and signed 10 years ago, that includes language that encompasses future technologies unknown at the time, then the author may have already agreed with that language to allow a publisher to mint an NFT of her work without even knowing what an NFT was at the time. So it's possible that there's language embedded in the contract already covering future technologies that would give the publisher control over the creative's NFTs. And so this analysis, this concept is not without precedent. The same thing happened uh, with eBooks. And before eBooks were commonplace, there was language in publishing contracts that gave publishers the right to control the creative work in unknown or yet to be known technologies. So about, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the battle over can a publisher publish the ebook of a work was fought. And so if you look back to that battle and you look at the language in those contracts and you compare it to the language in today's contracts, there's an argument that publishers might have the right to control NFTs. 
And just as a really good example of that, uh, many authors just signed an addendum, right? The old the ones who signed it, uh, signed older contracts. But J.K. Rowling kept her digital rights for um, the Harry Potter books and created Pottermore, which is now like $25 billion business or something, because she kept those rights. Correct, correct. So you can keep those rights. And in fact, what I recommend in the post, now that we know that NFTs are um, they are a thing, whether you like them or not, they're out there, that you should reserve your rights to NFTs. And you should think very critically about this known and unknown technologies language in your publishing contract so that you can make the decisions on how your creative rights are exploited. You can decide whether you want an NFT out there. If you are a person who does not believe that NFTs are a good idea, then you're going to want to prevent a publisher from minting them on your behalf. And just to be clear, again, on the language, I've seen contracts that say all formats existing now and to be invented for the term of copyright or for whatever term that people sign. And I've had several people recently who've said that the publishers will not negotiate on that clause. And I'm like, well, walk away then. (laughs) But I guess uh, for some people, it it might be worth it. But are there any other sort of ways of phrasing that kind of clause so that people can keep an eye out for it? Well, so you're, they're right. Publishers are pushing back against that because they don't want to give up what may be the future, the bounty of the future, right? But what we know is we know that NFTs exist now. So what we can what you can say is you can keep that clause, but I want to expressly exclude NFTs and any publishing on the blockchain, right? Mm. So so and they may say no, they may still say no, and you're right. Then you have to walk away. It's very hard for a writer who is presented particularly with their first publishing contract to walk away at all over any dispute in the language. And that's why publishers are able to to collect all these rights, whether they exploit them or not, from the author, because authors are, um, writers are very interested in being published by traditional publishers. They'd rather, many would rather go that route rather than self-publish. But I have had a number of clients who have walked away when the publisher wouldn't negotiate on language. And there are lots of provisions. This is not the only provision that are make or break provisions in a deal. And I've had uh, many clients who would walk away and then hire publishing services to assist them in publishing their work, but maintaining all their rights. But having said that, Joanna, there are also publishers out there who will negotiate on Mm. the language. And so if I'm able to say, yeah, but this publisher agreed to this language. So it's not a uniform refusal across the board from the publishing industry. 
Yes, very good point. And the first thing is always to negotiate, like you get your contract and you negotiate it. So you're absolutely right. But let, I, I want to dig down on it even more because so you talked there about saying something like NFT rights to be retained or even publishing on the blockchain. But the issue I also see is that contracts include language like ebooks or audiobooks or digital rights. And let's say even if you could exclude NFT rights, what an NFT is <laughs> could be the EPUB of the book, right? It could be audio files, MP3 files of the audiobook. Uh, it, it, you might want to include a, a cover. Uh, well, you, you should include some kind of cover or image. So again, I feel like even if you exclude NFT rights, what if your contract already covers ebook rights and, and audiobook rights? Okay, so let's think about that a little bit because the NFT is composed of the digital file holding the creative work, right? Whether it's a JPEG or an EPUB or an MP3 or an MP4, that's the digital file that holds the creative work. The, NF, the other part of the NFT is the smart contract that identifies the original digital file, right? So you're actually talking about two separate pieces. You've got the NFT code, the smart contract, and then you have the original digital file that is called in the code, right? So, so arguably, the publishers have the right to control that digital file. They have the digital rights. But you can say you do not have the right to create a smart contract calling that digital file, right? So we're starting to parse it down a little bit more deeply. Um, but if you want to control those rights, there has to be a way in the contract language to do it. And if it matters to you, then you start working and negotiating until you come up with something that satisfies both parties. If the publisher wants the right to mint NFTs, then they're not going to give that up and you have to decide whether you're going to let them do it. And when you consider whether you're going to let them do it, you want to take a look at whether they've done it before. Mm. Or are, right? Or are, are they going to experiment with your creative work? What is their experience in minting NFTs? And right now, not a lot of people have a lot of experience in this. No, especially in the book world, although I think it will accelerate. We'll come to the acceleration soon. But again, and I'm still coming back on different things because I feel like there's so many clauses that people might have. Another interesting clause is reserving the right for special editions. And probably the most famous example, I think, is Brandon Sanderson, who a couple of years ago, he did a, his first Kickstarter and raised $6.7 million for a 10th anniversary special edition of his first novel, which which had been traditionally published, but in his traditional publishing contracts, he retained special editions. Now, in my head, an, an NFT can be a digital special edition because it's not the same as the, let's say, mass market ebook, for example, uh, or it could be a collectible. So what do you think about the language around special editions and NFTs? I think that that is exactly the kind of thing that you can negotiate with a publisher. But what you have to have in mind is, wh what are your future plans for your business? 
And a publishing contract is just one part of your business, right? So what do you intend to do with your creative rights? And it is limited only by your imagination. A special edition is separate and apart from the mass market book. So knowing what your plan is for your business is important before you can negotiate the terms that will allow you to move your business in that direction. So you have to think more holistically um, about your business and what you can do with your rights. So there's a steep learning curve involved for authors, new authors especially, authors who've been in the business for a while and who have more facility managing their rights and doing uh, many things, different things with their rights are going to be thinking about this. But it's that new author, that first publishing contract that is going to uh, prove a challenge. And so you have to figure out where does it fit in your business and how are you going to manage your business going forward? And I think when you say new author there, I would say that's new to the more independent creator sphere, um, because you might be an an author who's been publishing for 30 years, have a lot of traditional background, but you might be new to this idea of owning and controlling your intellectual property. And so you can be very new in business, but very old in kind of creativity, I guess. And often I feel like where people are less empowered in this situation is they're not used to kind of going... I'm the creator. I'm valuable. I can negotiate. I can control this. And of course, this is so difficult because this is brand new, isn't it? How It's very hard to think, well, how's this going to shape out? Right. Because we don't know how it's going to shake out. We need to, somebody has to test the waters. Somebody has to go out and do it and let's see what happens. And because it's so new, you don't know how to negotiate. What's the royalty split on an NFT going to be? What makes sense? 25%, 50%, 12%. What makes sense? We don't know because we haven't seen the market working yet, which is a reason to reserve it. And, and on that point, you can reserve it, right? Let's assume that the publisher agrees that you can reserve your NFT rights, minting rights. And then the publisher goes out and mints some NFTs with other authors, other writers, other creative work, and they get the experience and they start being successful, exploiting those rights. Well, then maybe you want to go back to the publisher and say, okay, now it's time to talk, Mm. right? Now, Now there's a track record. Now we can look and see what it means. And now all these other issues that NFTs raise um, have been sorted out. And there are a lot of issues with these NFTs. Yes. And that's why it's so interesting, such a developing uh, uh, space. But let's just go back to the smart contract. So we've talked about the sort of traditional publishing type contracts. The smart contract, I think, is interesting. And you mentioned royalty split there. What is so amazing to me, why I am excited about this, is the resale of NFT, NFT books, let's say, and that a percentage of resale goes back to the creator's wallet, or it can be distributed to whatever wallets, you know, many authors want to give royalties to charity, for example, all of this can happen automatically on sale and resale based on the smart contract. So how big a deal is this resale, do you think? 
I think it's a huge, I think it's a huge deal from the creator's perspective and also from the buyer's perspective. If I buy your book and it's on my Kindle, I can't give it to people. I can't resell it. It's licensed to me. I don't really own it. But the idea that I could buy it and and resell it, knowing that a piece goes back to you, the creator. So I'm paying you in the first instance, and I get to give you a benefit again in the second instance and move your book along to, to share, you know, with whoever I want to share it with. So I, I love that concept. I do want to ask you one thing. Let's think about this for a minute. I had always considered, because I also work with a lot of visual artists, that this resale percentage back to the original creator would be a percentage of the appreciated value above the original sale price. I hadn't considered it in terms of, let's say that you sell it for face value or for less than you bought it. I hadn't considered that a percentage would go back to the creator in that instance, because what I was conceiving was that the creative work sells for face value appreciates greatly and the original creator gets none of the appreciated value. So, and the art contracts that have been drafted over the past decades to try and capture this had all been based on a percentage of appreciated value. So what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I see it as a percentage of the sale and the resale of the whole thing. So if you buy something for $100 and then I get the $100 minus the fee of the platform, let's say 2%, because that's the one I'm looking at at the moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then if you resell it for $200, I get uh, 10% of $200 not of the extra hundred because I, and and this is, this actually comes on to my, the example I use is the secondhand book market where if it was a physical book, you would sell it on for whatever, 150 or $200 or whatever, and you'd get the $200. And so that's how I see it is that it's a percentage of, of the total of the sale every time. That's my understanding. Right. Well, so with smart contracts, we can decide which one we want it to be. Mm, I know which one I want. <laughs> yes, I, I understand that. I understand that. And you can make that decision. And that attaches to that original digital file moving forward. But the, the contracts can be created in many different ways, however the creator wants to do it. But that makes sense. It's straight on the flat resale value. I love the concept of used bookstores now. It's it's a new business model. I mean, do you remember wandering into used bookstores that were on every corner, at least in my town, and just going through the dusty stacks of used books and picking up the things that you hadn't even heard of or seen and bringing them home? I mean, I'm looking forward to doing that again, only virtually. 
Mm. And that's where like talking about the metaverse and maybe virtual reality, augmented reality, I've written about the augmented reality bookstore because physical shelves are not big enough. But if you're wearing, let's say, Apple glasses, you could go in and turn on your AR filter and the walls would expand into a whole load more virtual shopping spaces. And that potentially might include NFTs. I mean, there's so much we could go into, but I do want to also ask you about this because at the moment we have term of copy copyright, which, you know, 50 to 70 years after the death of the author. And when I first started getting into NFTs, I thought, oh, okay, so I do a smart contract and it will end when I at the term end of the term of copyright, it will just expire. But then I thought, well, no, this is like a collectible. If it's a one of one NFT edition, it's an original and copyright doesn't expire on an original book. You can just keep selling, like, again, going back to the physical secondhand copy, you can keep selling your first edition of Dickens, <laughs> and it will still have more value. The end of copyright doesn't make a difference to a collectible. Um, am I right with that? Or am I just completely off base? No, I, I believe you're um, completely correct about that. And a number of lawyers on um, copyright Twitter agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we've explored it in depth, but that is my view of the situation. And just to um, circle back a little bit to publishing contracts and how this intertwines with publishing contracts. So publishing contracts are typically bound by the term of copyright in the creative work. And so if an NFT can be minted, that is a collectible that is not bound by the term of copyright, then that's an argument that, in fact, the publisher does not have the right to mint an NFT because it would be, on the, be beyond the scope of the grant in the publishing contract because the publishing contract is limited by the life of copyright. An NFT isn't limited by the life of copyright. Mm. Um, therefore, a publisher doesn't have the right to mint NFTs. So that's just another argument for existing contracts when you can't negotiate new language. So I just mm. wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, that's that's a good one. And obviously, we're going to see different things happen with this. It was interesting, Quentin Tarantino tried to do an NFT of a scanned copy of Pulp Fiction, the script. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I don't know if the court case is settled, but it was like they said, you can't do that. And I think it was because there was a picture of Uma Thurman or something, which he didn't have the rights to. So I can just see all of these different things happening as people are like, well, does this, and, and we're going to have these cases, aren't we, where people will hone their language after every case. <laughs> well, but so where are the cases going to be held? Right? Yes. Yes. I mean, we mm. have these marketplaces that are not bound by jurisdiction. So where's the tribunal? Who's going to decide this? That's a very good a good point. And of course, a lot of people, I guess, do sign all all countries like world English or whatever. But mm -hmm. as you say, yeah, where's the jurisdiction? And, and this is a big deal. There's so much we can talk about. But I want us to move on to DAOs because okay. I really want to pick your brain on DAOs. So for people listening, I will have done a little introduction up front. But DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And the state of Wyoming in the USA has uh, now allows DAOs to be officially recognized. And they, I guess we're talking about them as a kind of new kind of company. So what do you find interesting about DAOs? Well, first of all, Wyoming, right? 
don't, I mean, wild, wild west cowboys. I mean, <laughs> it just perfect for Wyoming to be the first state to recognize DAOs as an organization. I just, that just, I love that. But just in talking about that, they have recognized them as a form of LLC, as a form of limited liability company, right? And so it seems, so it's not its own entity. It sits under LLCs. And it strikes me that they did it for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that they did it is because if you set up a DAO, you will be, at least in the United States, without a corporate umbrella structure, the individuals who set up the DAO would be subject to personal liability if something goes wrong. Okay, because they'd be treated as general partnerships and they as a general partnership and they'd be answerable for the liabilities of the partnership. If you put the DAO in an LLC, then the organizers have limited their personal liability. Okay, so I think that's one of the reasons that Wyoming did it that way. Now, think about the liability in these DAOs, and we have a track record of some DAOs, um, well, the DAO, um, when they established themselves and they were crowdfunded, it was a a hedge fund. It was a a hedge fund DAO. So they're, they're gathering all kinds of money. They're getting money from investors and they had millions and millions of dollars. And a DAO is created using a smart contract on the blockchain The code in the smart contract is public. Everybody can see it. That's what brings accountability. And there was a bug in the code. And so users or hackers, I think they were users actually, uh, were able to steal $55, $60 million out of the DAO. And at that point, those organizers, if they were identifiable, which I don't know the answer to that, could have been personally liable under general partnership rules in the United States. With an LLC, they will have limited their liability. So I think that's one reason that Wyoming did it that way. Just on that, we should say that example is from 2016 in the kind of really super, super wild west of of DAOs. And things have, have definitely moved on since then. But it does beg the question, as we talked about, if there is no jurisdiction of blockchain I guess you'd want you decide where to when when you can set up your DAO. You would presumably choose a jurisdiction because you wanted to pay tax in that jurisdiction. I wouldn't set it up in America because I'm not in America. But does it make any difference where you are? So it's this. We've got these really interesting questions about where you would set things up, uh, what this might mean. But let's come on to the use cases for authors. So when you and I emailed about this, what what are you excited about in terms of DAOs for authors? So one of the biggest problems that I hear from my client base and from other lawyers that I work with is the estate planning problem. And you and I have spoken about this before, and it's still out there for self-published authors who have built a business and who want to leave their self-publishing company or business Um, in good hands so it can continue to generate income for their heirs or for whomever they want to leave it to. 
and their heirs are not necessarily suited to continuing the business. And so the question is, if you're looking for a trustee to run the business, you're looking for a literary trustee or a literary executor, they're not easily found for self-publishers. And so the first thing that came to my mind is that this is a great opportunity. A DAO would be a great opportunity to manage the estates of self-published Um, authors. And then it struck me that why do we have to wait until they become estates? So there are ways to use a DAO to assist self-published authors in the kind of management operations that that DAOs are suited to. I mean, they're accounting and payroll and all of this back-end stuff that could be handled by the automated nature of a DAO. Yes. And this is why I'm excited too, because I do have a one person business (laughs) and I do pretty well. But so much of what I do is, um, as you say, it's the back end stuff. And how I kind of see the future is that I will have some kind of IP registry chain and some kind of identity chain where I can prove things. And then I'll have, I'll be able to publish, to mint or publish whatever we want to call it through blockchain to whatever platforms there are in the future. And I'm pretty sure all of them will have something. And then the smart contracts will automatically execute. And then if I have a, if I co-write with someone like my friend Jay Thorne, who's also into all this, um, then it will automatically distribute to his wallet and my wallet. And we can do that with lots of people. And then as you say, once I die, there will be some something in the contract that will automatically start distributing funds to the wallets that I've um, identified for my future. So it is a way, as you say, of getting rid of the back-end accounting. I guess we should also say, I haven't really mentioned this, is that the money is automatic and it goes in, in like right away on, on transaction rather than manually being put together every month or every six months by people in an office, right? It's, it's automatic. Right. And so that really addresses, there are two parts to that automation. And the first is that it eliminates an administrative burden. All right. You don't have to do it. You don't have to log into your PayPal account and you don't have to send money to your co-author. So it it eliminates the administrative burden. The other thing it does is it increases trust between the parties. Okay. And if you're negotiating, if you are, are going into a deal with someone and I've seen this before with authors who have gone with new publishers and Publishers haven't paid the royalties, right? And that's a problem of trust. And what do you do? Do you have to sue them to get your royalties? Well, with the smart contract, especially on the financial side, it automatically happens. And it eliminates that whole notion of trust when it comes to handling the money, which is why I think DAOs are really good ideas um, for those kind of financial back-end pieces. It also makes it really easy to work with people anywhere in the world. It really does eliminate that kind of barrier to entry as well. But I, I see that, for instance, with publishing, 
the DAO is not going to be helpful when it comes to choosing the book cover or making marketing decisions. I mean, I guess marketing decisions can be designed with algorithms. I mean, Amazon's doing that now for sure. But there are, there has to be human interaction at some level. I don't see DAOs as offering a completely decentralized organization. I think there always is going to, at least now as I see it, there's got to be human interaction. Humans have to set it up, right, to begin with. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but I kind of see it as, so I've essentially instructed my husband, if something happens to me sooner than I expect, <laughs> which maybe that death is always sooner than we expect, but sooner than we would generally think, then I've basically said to him, just sell the package of my IP to someone who can do something with it. Because like we've talked about, my family is not going to do this business. But what I almost see is that if I, I mean, and what we all want, if we we need to organize our estates before we die, that's kind of the point. So Mm -hmm. at the moment, that's what I'm thinking. But what I think with a DAO is that if I, if I, and this will take a bit more technology, obviously, but if I can set up a DAO so that it, it, the publishing part becomes very easy and essentially then all someone has to do, all my estate has to do is sell the DAO and, and the value of the DAO should also be visible. My IP would all be organized. And then it's a case of whatever the agencies of the future or the publishers of the future, then it's much easier to sell on my DAO. And that makes the estate management easier. And maybe the wallets still exist in there and maybe micropayments still go out to the original wallets. I can just see that it will, it will again, make it easier. But of course, you're right. Someone still has to do whatever marketing we do in the future, but it just um, should make it easier, I guess. Right. And so then that's a, that's a great concept. And then your DAO is set up and running. The value is apparent because we have transparency with respect to what's going on in, in the blockchain. Then entities or individuals who have the skill set of running a publishing enterprise can take a look and say, all right, that is something that would be worth my investment of X, because if I use my skill set to run it, I can get five times X return. And that makes sense for me to then buy. So now we're talking about a whole different marketplace. Mm. We're talking about a marketplace for a DAO that controls the NFTs and the digital assets and all of the other things a marketplace for individually created DAOs. That's a new concept for me. Mm, well, I just, I think about these things a lot. Like I've got a book here on my desk. I'm trying to find the author who wrote it under a pseudonym and it's out of print and the agent's dead and the publisher's dead. And I'm like, I, I, it's impossible for me to find this dude. And Or if it was a dude. And it's like, if there was a blockchain, I could see some kind of authenticity or I could get a message to a wallet or if I could purchase that in through my own DAO, that would be awesome. But I do want to uh, talk also about another use, use case, which to me is author organizations, let's say the Alliance of Independent Authors or author collectives. So it might be, for me, indie thriller writers where we can come together and use DAOs for governance of an organization with a bigger mission and also have tokens for access to different levels like the, you know, a group of thriller authors. Or we can just, there are lots of things we could do as a collective. So what do you think about that use case? Oh, I think the use case, and I I think of it more as, as membership, right? 
the same thing. I think the um, membership use case is um, really viable. People are out there doing it already, right? And so if you are a member of an author's DAO and you have your token, you have a token, and that has independent value that you can then sell, right? So the underlying contract to the DAO would have to control how that token could be sold, right? You can't, I mean, if you're, um, it's an association of thriller authors, then maybe you can't sell it to a romance author or something, or you have to have two novels published before you can be a, a token owner or something. You have to set up what the rules are. But then the owner of the token, the token has independent value, which makes the organization more valuable as a whole. Now, if it's a membership or a trade organization, you pay your dues, you're a member. You don't pay your dues, you're not a member, right? There's no value in the membership that you can transact. And so I, I think it makes a lot of sense for that kind of an organization, a membership organization, especially because of the notion that the decisions of the organization are controlled by voting. The voting is made much easier in this kind of an association. You have to think very carefully about when a um, decision will be taken. For instance, in the Wyoming Dow law, decisions are made by a majority vote, okay? Some DAOs that are out there, and maybe that's not a good idea, maybe it is a good idea. Some DAOs are out there require unanimous consent. Well, one of the problems with that is that people don't participate, right? They have their mm. token, but they're not voting. They're just, they just go ahead and do what you want. I'm just not, I'm not interested in organizing, right? So then you can have two different levels. You can have a management level and you can have a membership level. So you have to think very carefully about how ongoing decisions are going to be made and what percentage of owners are going to or members are who are also owners, right? Yeah, I was just going to say being a member is is the point and community is huge in this space and mm -hmm. will continue to be huge. But I, I'm very aware of your time and I do want to ask you one more question, which is more about where this might be going. So we talked a bit about acceleration earlier. And as we record this, like yesterday, President Biden in the USA signed an executive order about crypto and blockchain, basically saying, yes, we need to look at this. We need to minimize risk, but also we need to keep the US competitive in the development of digital assets. So, and the crypto coins went up in value because I guess most people are seeing this as a positive thing. But what do you think might happen because of this? I mean, obviously this is all speculation, but but what will happen next? <laughs> well, well, so as I mentioned before we got on the call, I really think that this executive order acts to um, legitimize the whole industry, blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFT. I mean, it, it gives an air of legitimacy. People are now going to take notice. Okay, our future, our economic future may just lie in this digital technology. And the United States is going to look at it seriously. And people are already doing it, right? People are already doing it. Now, people are also losing a whole lot of money, 
There's a lot of fraud going on. There's a lot of these rug pulls and there's hacking and theft and there's all this stuff. It's still going on, even though the smart contracts have developed over the past years, there's still a lot of mistakes being made. So one of the things that that executive order is going to look at is how do we protect people from these kinds of consumer-related problems, because we're not all sophisticated in this area. So how do we protect people and still let them invest and still let it develop? So I think that we're moving, um, we're one step away from wild, wild west with this executive order. I think things are going to become more normalized. I think the platforms are going to become um, and they're working on it. They're more user-friendly. That's where I was going because, you know, it's still pretty difficult. There's still kind of a high barrier to entry. You have to have a certain amount of technical expertise to get into this game. So I think that we're going to um, see more standardization. I think we're going to see more protections, and I think we're going to see more clarity. So the platforms are going to be there for people who are less sophisticated to use and to get into the game. Brilliant. And uh, right up front, you said that you are enjoying watching this space. And I think that's probably (laughs) how we can end as well, because both of us are watching this space and both of us are very interested. But of course, this is not financial or legal advice uh, to get into any of this. But if people do want to hear your thoughts as things develop, where can people find you and everything you do online? You can find me at creativelawcenter.com. And that's where I write about all the things that I'm thinking about. I offer workshops. I have a membership opportunity there where I help creative professionals think about their rights, think about how they're structuring their business, help them actually build their business, help them market their work, help them create multiple revenue streams with their intellectual property. And so creativelawcenter.com, and I would invite your listeners to uh, come and see me there. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Catherine. That was great. It was. It was lovely. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. So I hope you found the interview with Catherine interesting and that it's helped you think about what you want to do about NFT rights. If you are considering a traditional publishing deal or signing any contract around licensing, seriously, have a think about it. And even if you don't want to get into NFT editions now, and remember, it is very early days, uh, but you want to protect your choices in the future. So I highly recommend you follow Catherine's blog and get on her email list as she sends lots of useful and thought-provoking insights, obviously from her incredibly knowledgeable perspective. (laughs) Don't listen to me, listen to Catherine. (laughs) So I'd love to know what you think about this episode. You can tweet me at The Creative Pen, email me joanna at thecreativepen.com, leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. And also, of course, you can leave questions or thoughts. I don't, as I said, I'm not an expert. I'm just learning all this stuff. But I think this is the future. So back to the usual show on Monday when I talk to Monica Lionel about how to use Kickstarter for your book. The interview is packed full of ideas. And yes, I am intending to do my own Kickstarter in the next uh, month or so, really, because I'm going to do it for my next book, which will be something like how to write a novel. Very many exciting opportunities for creators these days. So happy writing and I'll see you next time.
Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.